0: This morning, we're coming into the the final section of Peter's first letter. We've been looking at this letter for quite some time, and Lord willing, we will finish it before Easter. As you know by now very well, Peter wrote this letter to a group of believers who were suffering. They, They were spread throughout what we would consider Asia Minor, located in little churches in various cities and and they were suffering. They were being mocked and, and verbally abused because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Likely, finances were tight for them as as their faith had turned them into misfits in their society, and and they were finding that employment was was becoming more and more challenging. From from what we can tell, they they were not at this moment facing actual physical persecution. They they were not um, being beaten or anything like that for their faith yet, but they were certainly experiencing difficulties. Their life was not what we would call the easy life. Peter wrote this letter to them. He wrote this to encourage them and and to help them as they go through this beginning stage of suffering with anticipation that more may be coming. For that reason, suffering has been a main theme throughout the letter. And as Peter enters this, this final section here, he, he turns to the topic of suffering one more time. And, and he's going to look at it now from a different angle. He's looked at it from various ways. And, and we'll look at it again. And this morning as we enter this last section, I want us to observe five truths that Peter gives us about suffering. And then that's followed by the reason that he gives for suffering. Let's jump right in this morning and read what Peter writes. We're picking up here in verse twelve, as you see on the screen of chapter four. Peter writes, "Beloved," that 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 word "beloved." That that's the note of endearment that Peter has as he's talking to these believers who are suffering. As he entered the second section back in, in chapter two, verse eleven, he he used "beloved" there as well, and be, he he wants them to know he cares about them. "Beloved," do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evil evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Our first task this morning is to observe. I I want us to observe these these five truths that Peter gives us about suffering, these, these truths about suffering. It's always necessary that, that we think properly about things before we can come to the right understanding of the purpose of anything. We, we have to understand the facts before we can ascertain the purpose. Well, suffering is no different. We, we have to know the truth about suffering before we can understand the reason for it properly. That, that's why Peter lays out several truths that, that we need to comprehend here about suffering before he gets to the reason Peter, as I said, gives five of these, five truths about suffering, and we just read. Now, now none of these truths are new. We've seen them all at various times already in this letter. At least, in most cases, a time or two, sometimes even more. But the thing is, now that we've covered all this material that's got us to this point, coming into this final section, Peter repeats them because they may hit us differently. I have this experience frequently, you know, I've been preaching here long enough now where I know I repeat myself. Some of that's intentional, some of it's probably just old age, but, but I'll say the same phrase over and over again, I'll say the same ideas, I'll, I'll repeat myself, and, and invariably, someone will come up to me and say, that was great insight. Well, I know in my mind I've said that same insight multiple times. The insight itself, the the words haven't changed. What's changed is the life experience of this person because usually when that person comes up and talks to me, I know something about what's transpired in their life in the past several months. And for that reason, this truth now hits where the other times it just bounced off. Well, the same thing's true here. Peter's told these truths before, but he's also expanded and, and explained a lot of things in the last two chapters. So now as he repeats these truths again, looking at suffering from a new angle, he expects it to hit differently. Truth number one, observe that suffering is unsurprising. Peter begins with the command, do not be surprised. This is a command. Do not be surprised. Peter begins this final section here with the command to the dear leaders not to be surprised that they encounter suffering. I'm, I'm sure living here in Michigan, we all have had this experience. We're, we're driving along icy roads, and, and because we know that icy roads hinders our traction, we're taking it slow and careful. We're, we're, we don't want to slide off the road. We know that steering and stopping are going to be precarious. So, so we are approaching the ice gingerly. And then as we're gingerly driving down the road, What comes alongside us? (laughs) A four-wheel drive, right? A four-wheel drive, and we look at that person, we we understand that they have the mistaken belief that their four-wheel drive will allow their four wheels to have greater traction on this icy road. Yet, we go down the road, and a couple miles, we are totally unsurprised when we see that four-wheel drive either off the road in the ditch or up the curb because they couldn't make a turn, we're unsurprised. We anticipate that will be the circumstance. Well, in a similar fashion, there is nothing about suffering that should surprise a Christian. Remember, we're specifically dealing with suffering here because they are Christians. That's why they were suffering. The, the world that we live in, it, as I've said so many times in this, this series, this world is in rebellion against God. This world then hates the Son of God. It hates our Savior. And, and actually, we know put him to death. That's pretty strong hatred, killed him. Well, it's unsurprising that that hatred would spill over to those who bear his name. It's unsurprising. Of course, as I've also said numerous times, it's just as unsurprising for us to encounter general suffering. Not just the suffering because we bear the name of Christ, but just general suffering. We live in a broken world. Sin has has ruptured the the utopia that God created this world in. Death, disease, greed, abuse, pain, all these things. They come because this world is groaning under the curse of sin human suffering is a result of the curse. There's nothing about human suffering that should surprise us. It's not, if we use Peter's words here, as though some strange thing were happening to us when we encounter suffering. This idea has flowed throughout this letter to this point, so I won't belabor it any further, but the first truth is is simply that, that suffering is, number one, unsurprising. The second truth is also familiar by now. Suffering should not affect our joy. It should not affect our joy. Joy is not tied to our circumstances. For that reason, suffering should not affect our joy. We've heard this refrain over and over in this letter. It's almost like this is the chorus that is sung after every passage in in this book. Peter points out in verse 13 once more that, that our suffering comes about because we are Christians. When it comes, because we're Christians, it, it should actually, he says, generate more joy if it comes because we are Christians. In, in this specific case, when we're suffering for in the name of Christ, our suffering proves that we are connected to Christ. Our suffering for Christ gives us a chance, Peter says, to share in his suffering. And as Peter explained in the previous section, that sharing means that we will also then share in his glory when he comes again. This truth, as I also said when we've looked at it before, do, does not mean that, that we should take some kind of perverse pleasure and pain. There, there's nothing here that implies we should enjoy suffering. Suffering as such, it is not what brings the joy. As, in fact, Peter calls it in verse 12 a fiery ordeal, something that is painful, it's unpleasant. This, this past week I was reminded of this truth once again as I was talking with a friend about how death is ugly. It's simply ugly. There's nothing joyful about death itself. It's an ugly reminder of sin and the the consequence of sin, the, the horrible consequence of sin. Yet even death cannot affect our joy because our joy is in the one who has already achieved victory over sin and death. We rejoice in Christ. We don't rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in Christ. Our joy is grounded in, in such a glorious person that, that any suffering that we happen to experience, even suffering that's tied to Him, doesn't touch our joy. Our joy and our suffering, they're, they're, they're separate things. That's truth number two. Suffering should not affect our joy. Moving on to the third truth. Suffering reveals our unique blessing. Our unique blessing. Peter seems to be recalling the words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount when he writes verse 14. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Peter's taken the idea and paraphrased it, this is that thought-for-thought way of translating, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. That was happening right at the time he wrote this letter to the people that he was sending this letter to. These are people who were being insulted. They they were being accused falsely because of Christ. And Peter says, remember, this just means you're blessed. seems strange to, to think of persecution to think of insults, to think of false accusations as blessings, doesn't it? It, it doesn't really compute in our brains. The, the limited experience that I've had with, with such, and, and it's very limited for me, but there's been times I've been falsely accused that it doesn't feel like a blessing. Look at what Peter writes, though. Peter reminds the readers that, that their experiences, what they're enduring, that does not determine their true state. It's their relationship with God through Christ that determines what they truly are. Not what other people say. Their true state, what they truly have, is the Spirit of glory and of God resting on them. That's the truth. That's the facts. In other words, the Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That's their true state. They are children of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself. What they feel because of their suffering does not affect what they truly are. And what they truly are is blessed. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their, their lives, this is a unique blessing, something that Christians alone can experience. And it's a blessing that is revealed in a stronger way when we suffer. If we think about it, this happens in a couple of different ways as as we suffer, and that reveals the spirit one there 's that peace that, that passes understanding that that just unbelievers can 't comprehend this peace that believers experience the the calmness and the joy that that comes as, as god 's grace flows into our lives, and God uses so many different physical channels to flow 's grace into our lives we have friends, we have gifts we have excuse me, We have the church. We even have our jobs. All these things that, that the Holy Spirit uses to bring grace into our life, but ultimately, all of this comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit shows His presence in our lives by, by using these various channels to administer grace to us during our suffering. There's also the demonstration that suffering gives us of our union with Christ when we suffer because we are Christians, when we are hated by the world because we are Christians, we know that we are united to Christ. Again, this point has come up several times. Our union with Christ means that we have the Holy Spirit uh, according to God's promise. The Spirit is this unique blessing. He, He rests on us. We are blessed. Suffering reveals this unique blessing. That's truth number three. Number four, suffering promotes honest self assessment. Honest self assessment. Peter's told us before there is no value whatsoever in suffering simply because we are obnoxious. Even if we happen to be an obnoxious Christian, obnoxious is obnoxious. Unfortunately, that's always a possibility. We, we can bring suffering on ourselves simply by being unwise. We can bring suffering on ourselves by being obnoxious. We can bring suffering on ourselves by making sinful choices. Yet there's only value when we suffer for the right reasons. By, when we suffer because of, by God's design, He lets suffering come because we are Christians. One of the natural things that should happen then when, when suffering comes into our lives is that we should take a moment step back and take stock. Are we suffering for the right reasons? We need to do an honest self-assessment. Have we brought this suffering on by doing wrong or is it the result of doing right? Peter says that, that we should make sure that we're not suffering as a murderer or a thief or evil evildoer. I'm sure every Christian, and for that matter, pretty much every non-Christian, agrees that these kind of heinous sins should result in suffering. There should be a punishment that comes when you sin in such a way, it's easy for us to sit here and nod our head that we should suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, and as Christians we should not be suffering for those reasons. The problem is that Peter goes on and list a fourth item in this list here in verse 15. A fourth item that, that we should see is just as deserving of suffering, and therefore should be just as avoided by Christians. This fourth item is one that Peter seems to have actually coined the term for. He, he, he made up a word to describe it. This word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament that he uses. It's not found anywhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Peter would have had available. In fact, to, to this day, it's never been found in any Greek literature outside of Scripture that predates Peter. It seems like Peter made up a word. A word, when you make up words, you usually use words that will create an image in your mind. You combine words, and that's what Peter did. A word that would form an image of someone who is overseeing someone else's business. A busybody. A meddler. That's certainly how the early church understood Peter's word from... What we find this word popping up in literature afterwards in the early church, while they still spoke Greek, they understood that Peter was describing a, a meddler. Peter's point is there's no more admirable to suffer because you've gone and stuck your nose into someone else's business than it is to suffer because you're a murderer or a thief. Now, to the best of my knowledge, we do not have any murderers sitting here this morning. I'm not aware of any thieves either. But are there any troublesome meddlers in the group? Do do some of you find that that you're drawn to sticking your nose into other people's business? I'm not talking about genuinely helping or advising someone when you're asked. I'm not talking about pushing biblical truth on someone even when they don't want to hear it because we do have a biblical obligation to do that. What I'm talking about is pushing your help where it's neither wanted nor biblically warranted. When you receive blowback for that, that type of behavior, you are not suffering as a Christian. You're suffering, suffering as a troublesome meddler. And the point that Peter makes in verse 15 when he writes, make sure that none of you suffer as these things they list, if that suffering should promote an honest self-assessment, we need to make sure that we're not bringing it on ourselves. Have we brought it on through our own actions and our, and our reactions? If so, then we need to change our actions and reactions. We need to change for the cause of Christ. There, there's no shame, as Peter writes in suffering as a Christian, but we need to make sure that's why we're suffering. Suffering promotes honest self-assessment. That's truth number four. Number five, suffering focuses us on the end. It focuses us on the end. Christ is coming again. We rejoice in that fact. We celebrate that every time we gather on a Sunday morning on what we call the Lord's day. This is the day he rose from the tomb and that. Points to the fact he's victorious and he is coming again. That that glorious truth is rung out, out already several times in the letter. Christ is coming, and that means that righteous judgment is coming as well. Peter just finished making that point at the end of the previous section. So now in verses 17 and 18, Peter takes the idea, but he throws a slightly new twist on it by observing that really our current suffering assures us that Christ is coming again because our current suffering as Christian means that God has already started judgment. He's judging his own house. He's cleaning up his house. He's getting it ready. In in chapter 2, Peter pictured us as as living stones in, in God's spiritual house and and now this idea of God's house is picked up again. And, and he uses that image to assure us that the judgment that we are receiving now as Christians is a refining judgment. It's a shaping judgment. It's, a, it's designed to make us fit into our position in God's house, purifying us, making us ready for the return of Christ. Our judgment must necessarily come before the judgment of unbelievers. It comes before those who, in Peter's word, disobey the gospel of God. It has a different purpose. Its purpose is prepare us for the coming of Christ. This judgment comes before he returns. Yet Peter says, if this judgment must happen first, and we're experiencing now, and if it's that painful, or this painful, the severity of this judgment, this suffering for Christ, that indicates how great the judgment will be when they come, or, or for them when he comes. These godless people, who, who the very ones who are generating the suffering that God's using to purify us, they have a greater judgment approaching. Our Lord, when he comes, will make all things right. He will set the balance right. He will ensure that those who are doing evil pay for their crime. The, the magnitude of our suffering now indicates how great their judgment will be. In the meantime, suffering Christians yearn for his coming. We yearn for that day when he makes things right. It causes us to remember that what we endure now as Paul says, is nothing more than momentary light affliction because it's producing in us, Paul says, a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And for that reason, Paul says, we are afflicted every day, not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's all found in Second Corinthians 4 in Paul's words. This is the suffering we're enduring, but it causes us to look to the future. Suffering causes us to focus on the end when the Lord returns. And 2 Timothy 2.12 says, we will reign with him. Suffering puts our gaze forward. Truth number five, suffering focuses on the end. Five truths here about Suffering that, that Peter ticks off in, in these verses. Truths we've seen before, but it ticks them off again because he wants us to look at them, summarize them in a different way. Suffering is unsurprising. Suffering should not affect our joy. Suffering reveals our unique blessings. Suffering promotes honest self-assessment. And suffering focuses us on the end. Truths that we need to understand about suffering before we can understand the reason for suffering yet there is a reason for suffering. There is a reason. Let's think about that next. The, the reason for suffering. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 starts with the word therefore. And that, that means that what Peter writes in this verse is the logical conclusion to these five points that he's just made. Therefore, those who also... Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We'll tease this out in just a moment. But the way I would summarize the idea that that we can take away from, from what Peter writes here is that suffering allows us to display our faith in God. Suffering allows us To display our faith in God. There's these five truths about suffering we need to remember, but suffering, the purpose behind it, the reason these truths exist is so that our faith in God is on display. This is why we call the big idea that we can take away from this overall passage. Suffering allows us to display our faith in God. Displaying our faith in God really is, I hope, our ultimate purpose in life. Our ultimate purpose is not to discover the the easy path of life. Our ultimate purpose is not to avoid pain in life. Our ultimate purpose is not to make money or obtain fame or to have more toys or to have any of the other things that the world promotes as worthy goals. Now some of the things the world promotes as worthy goals are worthy goals such as caring for our children. That's a goal that the world says is worthy, and we agree. But none of these things are our ultimate purpose. If we carry the name of Christ, we have one ultimate purpose. That is to display our faith in God to a world who needs to know him as well. That is why we are here. If that were not our ultimate purpose, God would have taken us already. We are here to display him to a world who needs to know him. So now let's look at verse 19 a bit and and see how suffering can serve our ultimate purpose. How it allows us to display our faith in God. There, There are a couple of different ways indicated in this verse. First, we display our faith in God by accepting our suffering as his will for our lives. We display our faith in God by accepting our suffering as his will for our lives. Peter makes it clear that, that one, our, our suffering is according to the will of God. And, and two, we should therefore entrust our souls to him. That that word entrust is a powerful word. Our Lord used that word when he cried out from the cross, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Commit and entrust are the same words. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That means that our Savior entrusted God to be doing right even as he was breathing out his last breath. So here in Peter, that word means that that we accept that the circumstances of the the moment that we're experiencing, whatever it is, these circumstances are not an accident. Rather, these precise circumstances are God's precise design for our lives at that moment. It, It means that the circumstances that we are experiencing, we accept With the confidence that that a good God is using these circumstances, however painful they might be, for a good purpose. Because God only wills that which is good. Such acceptance displays faith in God. Jesus displayed that kind of acceptance when he willingly went to the cross, when he entrusted his life to God, when he suffered and died in, in faith that this was God's will and it was good. It was the Father's will. We display that kind of acceptance when we accept suffering as God's will for our lives as well. I remember how this idea struck Grace and I very powerfully when she was diagnosed with cancer. We we both read a small pamphlet by by John Piper. It's a small, you can see small. It's entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. One of the things that that Piper wrote in, in this pamphlet is that it will not do to say that God only uses our cancer but does not design it. What God permits, he permits for a reason. And that reason is his design. If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it or not. If he does not, he has a purpose. Since he is infinitely wise, it is right to call this purpose a design. As Grace and I thought about that statement, we realized that God had designed her cancer for her life. She did not have cancer because she'd eaten too much processed food or consumed too much sugar or any of the other potential life choices that can cause cancer. Sure, those choices may have been God's means that he used to place cancer in her body. But the reason that she had cancer was because God's will for her life was to give her cancer. God certainly could have enabled her body to destroy that that very first cancer cell that mutated and, and found residence there. God could have destroyed it in her body. God could have miraculously removed her tumor from her body once we knew she had cancer if he wanted to. God could have ensured that her body never produced a cancer cell in the first place. That processed everything she threw at it. Ultimately, the reason that grace had cancer was because God designed cancer into her life. That means that as painful as as it might be and as scary as it might be, her cancer, we concluded, was a good thing. It was God's will for her life. Well, the same logic applies to all suffering. Even suffering that comes because we are Christians. Believers all, of, all over the world are enduring great suffering because they carry the name of Christ. Many Christians have died in various parts of the world because they name the name of Christ. That is not happening by accident. In every case, it is God's will for their lives. When believers accept That being the case, their faith brilliantly shines forth in a way that stuns the eyes of the world watching them. Suffering allows us to display our faith in God. We display our faith in God by by first accepting our suffering as his will for our lives. Second, verse 19 also reminds us that we display our faith in God by continuing to live righteously while suffering continuing to live righteously while suffering or by if we want to use Peter's words by doing what is right by doing what is right we display our faith in God as we suffer think about it the the kind of suffering that that prompted Peter's letter here. Think about that kind of suffering that, that prompted Peter's attention was, was suffering that was, was brought on here to Christians who insisted on living differently from their world. The, the Christians were not participating in the cultural norms of the day. They, they were not a, attending the pagan feasts that, that were being held in the pagan temples. Feasts that, if you remember when we talked about that earlier in the letter, were connected to all kinds of social things of, of their day. Attending the temple feasts were attached to nationalism. That's why they went once a year to the the feast of the emperor in his temple. They were connected to communal activities. Every trade guild had their, their own temple god and you attended the feast if you were part of that trade. Birthday parties were held at temples. Yet the Christians were not attending these. They were not engaging with the culture. They they were not living the immoral sexual lives of their neighbors. They, they were not living the greedy, manipulative lives of, of others. They were avoiding the things that God called sins. They were doing what God calls right. And they were suffering because of it. They were misfits in their world. And they were being treated as such, often harshly. The expectation of those who who caused their suffering was that if the pain was just ratcheted up high enough, then these foolish Christians would get in line. If we made them hurt enough, they would buckle under and get back in line with the cultural program. Yet that was not what the Christians were doing. Christians don't do that. Christians simply keep on doing right. Christians keep living righteously while suffering. And that righteous living, again, caused their faith to shine forth brilliantly. Is your faith on display by your righteous living? I know how awkward it it can be when when coworkers ask you to join them as they they go engage in, in some activities that God calls sinful. I know how awkward it can be when when you simply say, no thank you, and they turn to you and say, well, why not? I know how awkward it can be when they start asking, what's wrong with you? Granted, feeling awkward is is an extremely mild form of suffering. I, I think we all would admit that. But it still wears us down, doesn't it? continuing to live righteously while while suffering, even this mild form puts our faith on display. When we simply keep on doing right, our faith shines forth. Suffering allows us to display our faith in God. We display our faith in God by, by continuing to live righteously while suffering. Our suffering has a reason. It allows us to display our faith in God. We do that as we accept that our suffering is His will for our lives and we display our faith as we continue living righteously while suffering. Suffering allows us to display our faith in God. That is our big idea. That is the reason for suffering. Displaying our faith in God is our ultimate reason for existence as Christians. Suffering gives us an opportunity to to fulfill our ultimate reason. Suffering allows us to put our faith on display in a way that attracts the world's attention. God brings it into our life so that we can have opportunity to fulfill our ultimate reason for life. Examine your life. Is your faith on display? As we've said before, if you are not suffering now, you will. Many of you I know as I look around this room are suffering right now in various ways. But if you're not at the moment, it will come. As we said at the beginning, we're not surprised, it comes. Are you allowing suffering to fulfill the reason that God has given it to you? Put your faith on display so that the world sees the glory of Christ shine forth. Suffering allows us to display our faith in God. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would enable us to be men and women who will be good stewards of the suffering that you bring into our lives. That we will see it as the gift that you have set for us is certainly never a gift that we would choose. But may we accept it from your good hand Is your good plan for our lives so that we have a unique opportunity to shine forth with our faith. Father, we do want to joyfully magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to have lives that are filled with joyful proclamation of Christ. We pray this, that you would enable us to do that. We pray this so that Christ would be magnified, that we would fulfill our purpose. We pray this in his name, the one who enables us through his sacrifice. Amen.